Now we'll turn to the scripture reading for this morning that comes from 2 Kings 4, verses 1 to 7. You can find that on page 574 in the Pew Bible in front of you, 574, 2 Kings 4, verses 1 to 7. We're moving along in the ministry of Elisha. We spent a long time with Elijah, and now we'll spend quite some time with Elisha. And before we read from that portion of God's Word, let's pray together. God, Your Word speaks life. It is breathed into by Your Spirit, and so we pray that You would fix it, fasten it to our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Kings 4, the wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that he revered the Lord, but now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, How can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a little oil. Elisha said, Go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars, and as each one is filled, put it to one side. She left him, and afterward shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, Bring me another one. But he replied, There is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. It's a short story, isn't it? And rather simple, very slim on details. The woman's, the woman's name isn't given. Her sons remain unnamed. We don't know where the story takes place. We don't know why Elisha was there. Her husband isn't named. How he died isn't named. The only thing we know about her husband is that he was a member of the company of the prophets. The company of the prophets would have been sort of like a, a pastor's group. They were a faithful few who were still faithful to the Lord. Even in a time of great difficulty, these were men who had been hunted down by Jezebel. They had stayed faithful to the Lord at risk of, of life and limb. And now, as we, as we enter into the story, we see that it's a, a tragic story. The woman's husband has died. And he seems to have died rather unexpectedly and probably fairly young because he leaves, he, he leaves his wife and her sons with no way of paying off his debts. And because there's no way of paying off his debts, they find themselves in trouble. But the man was a righteous man. He loved the Lord. His sons were righteous. His wife was righteous. But now they find themselves in seemingly a, a hopeless place. And I don't want us to miss the trauma of the situation. This this woman has already endured two things which would be emotionally crippling in their own right, and now she's about to endure a third. 
She's lost her husband unexpectedly and almost certainly at a young age. And then her, her sons are in danger of being carted off as debt slaves, probably young sons because they're unable to pay her debts themselves or provide for her. And then on top of that, with her husband gone and her sons gone, she's going to be reduced to poverty, probably to begging and perhaps to worse. And so the woman's creditor is coming. She has no way of paying her debts. The, the hour of reckoning is drawing near. Her sons are to be taken from her, adding grief upon grief upon grief. And now she does the only thing that she can think of. She goes and finds Elisha, the president, so to speak, of the company of the prophets. She has nowhere else to turn. She has no savings to draw from. She has apparently no family who are able to help, and certainly not, as we see, willing to help. And so she, she comes to the prophet, and she tells him her story, and she just lays it out before him. But do you see what she doesn't do in that, in that first verse? She doesn't ask for help. Now, it's implied, of course, isn't it? I mean, you don't go pouring your heart out to the prophet without some idea that he's going to pick up the idea that, that you want help. But, but she doesn't ask for anything. There's no, please give me some money, or please raise my husband from the dead, or, or please do this or do that. There's just, this is my situation, and I don't know how it's going to be fixed. And maybe in that, even a sense of, can it be fixed? How will God rescue me? And lurking behind that question is a question that comes in the context of the previous passage. In the, in the previous passage, the king of Israel was in need. And God wouldn't listen to him. And so if God wouldn't listen to the king, what grounds does she have to think that he will listen to a poor widow without a dime to her name. As you read the two stories together, as they say, the tension is thick enough to cut with a knife. But the tension isn't really quite so great for us. Because we read the Old Testament in light of Christ. And if we read this story in light of Christ, it makes perfect sense why the, the rich ruler would be sent away who would have nothing to do with God. But when we see poor, faithful, devout widows who are willing to come in humility and ask for help, we recognize this is the kind of person that God always listens to. So then as we move into the second verse, we do see that she is listened to. In verse 2, Elisha replied to her, How can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a little oil. God will listen. Elisha, how can I help you? Right? He recognizes a need and he wants to meet the need, but then he asks the question which must have, have sunk her hopes and, and dashed her, her heart on this. She, he says, what do you have in your house? Well, this is a very bad question to be asked. She has next to nothing in her house. If, this is, if God can only use what she has in her house, to save her, if the prophet will only take advantage of what she already has, then she's doomed. All she has, she says, is nothing. 
except a little bit of oil. And even with that, I don't have any flour. I don't have anything to use with the oil. But looming in the back of our minds in this instance ought to be hope. She may feel, she may feel helpless. But there's hope because if we go back to the time of Elijah, remember that Elijah's God is Elisha's God. And he, Elijah had taken a little bit of oil and done great things with it, hadn't he? He'd been sent out of Israel. Jezebel was hunting him. He'd been sent out of Israel to the heart of Baal country to a town called Zarephath where Jezebel was from. And there he had taken up residence with a a widow and her son. And that widow was about to die. Great famine, no bread, especially not for widows. And so she had a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil, and she was going to take the flour and the oil, and she was going to knead it into a little bit of bread. She was going to eat it with her son, and she was going to die. That was her plan. No hope. And why should she have hope? The pagan gods that she worshipped hadn't helped her at all. So why should she think they were going to help her now? But by God's providence, the prophet comes to her, And what does he do? But through this prophet, God makes that little bit of flour and that little bit of oil last all those years until the rain would come again and until there would be enough bread in the land that even poor widows could have some. And if God had saved that pagan distant widow with a little bit of oil, certainly God can save this humble, devout widow with a little bit of oil. So Elisha gives her some instructions in verses 3 and 4. Elisha said, Go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour the oil into the jars, and as each one is filled, put it to one side. So Elisha has a solution, right? He, He says, He says, abracadabra, here's some money, right? And then silver begins to fall from the sky. Well, not quite. He requires an investment. He requires an investment from this widow. She has to be personally involved. And she has to act in faith. She has to put herself on the line. She has to go to all of her neighbors and ask them for empty jars. And the neighbors probably thought she'd, she'd lost it in her grief. If you're in need, you typically don't ask for empty jars. You ask for full jars. right? But she has to go to all of her neighbors, and she has to ask for as many empty jars as she can find. And then, on top of that, she has to trust the Lord, because the prophet isn't going with her. Elisha's not going to go into her house. Elisha's not going to come and say some magic words over the jars. He's not going to bless the jars. He's not even going to be present. She has to bring all these jars into her house, and she has to trust that not Elisha, not someone she can see, not a voice she can hear, that not Elisha, but the Lord is going to fill the jars. She has to have faith. And as we see, she has faith. We see her response in verses 5 and 6. She left him and afterward shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her and she kept pouring. 
When all the jars were full, she said to her son, Bring me another one. But he replied, There is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. God promises, she believes, she obeys, and God saves. And she lives. Every jar is full. She has exactly what she needs. This should remind us of the Lord. The Lord Jesus in his own life on two occasions found himself in situations where there was a great need and not very much to feed it. And she fi- he finds himself with these great crowds And he has these great crowds who have followed him and they want to listen to his teaching. And then it comes time for dinner and there's no food. They don't have food. The disciples don't have very much food. And if you know anything about crowds and people, when they get hungry, they get cranky. And so there's going to be a problem. There might be a riot or it's at least going to turn a little ruckus. And if you know anything about God's people in the desert with Moses, when they got hungry, they got rebellious. And so the disciples, they come to Jesus and they say, we got a problem. We got a whole bunch of thousands of people and we don't have any food. And Jesus says, well, what do you have? And they say, well, we got 12 loaves. And what does he do? He takes those loaves, he prays, he starts breaking them and he starts handing them out in baskets. And the disciples go and they bring all this bread these, 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 these few loaves, they go and bring all these bread to all these people, and each person among the thousands of men, and ex- assumed as well thousands of women and thousands of children, all these people eat their fill, and there's more left over. But there's a difference between Elisha and Jesus. Elisha is not present, and Elisha does not fill the jars with the oil. Elisha does not multiply the oil. But Jesus is present. And Jesus does multiply the bread. Because, you see, Elisha's not God. He's not the Lord. But Jesus is God. And he is the Lord. But there's an interesting thing here. And the interesting thing here is that Elisha tells her to go in her house and shut the doors. Just with her sons and no one else. What a strange instruction. Wouldn't it have been more effective for her to get all these jars from her neighbors and all her neighbors know that she's collecting it and go into the middle of town, go into the the Burnham and Ridge of wherever she lives, anywhere town, and to to take all these jars and, and mound them up and then just pour the oil in miraculously for everybody to see. Wouldn't that have been a great testimony? right? Wouldn't it have led all the people in the town to marvel at how powerful and great God was? And right in the middle of pagan Israel at the time, languishing in idolatry, wouldn't that have been perhaps the very thing God could use to begin bringing His people back to Himself? perhaps. But that's not God's point here. God's intention, God's desire here is not to make a statement to everybody around. God's desire here is to care for His daughter. To meet her needs. 
to give provision to her. Her husband is dead. Her sons are about to become debt slaves. She's facing poverty. And so you must think that she was at least wondering, where is God? Does he still care about me? Has he forgotten me? And God wants to tell just her, I'm right here. I haven't forgotten. And I still care. You see, sometimes God does things for us. He does things so that we will see that God is good. Not every act of God in our lives needs to be put on broadcast television or tweeted, put on every social media platform we can find. Not every act of God needs to be woven into our testimony and talked about. Because sometimes God does good to us so that we will worship, so that we will find comfort. So often our first impulse whenever we see something like this is to say, who can I tell? And how can I make this known? And in some ways that's a good impulse. But our first impulse should be, God is good. See, God doesn't just want other people to worship. God wants you to worship. He doesn't just want other people to know that He is God. He does, but doesn't just want He wants you to know that He is God. Sometimes it needs to be good enough for us that God is our God. And that He cares for us. It's okay to close the door. To sit in the quiet. And to rejoice in what God has done for me. That yes, He cares not just for the world, but He cares for me. And this woman needed to know that God cared for her. And then verse 7 begins to tie things together for us. It says, She went and told the man of God, and he said, Go sell the oil and pay your debts. And you will live on what is left. Three verbs, right? Go, sell, pay. And one result, you and your sons will live and be able to live on what is left. God has met her needs. But really, he's done more than that. Because her immediate need was to be able to pay off her debts so that her sons wouldn't be carted off as debt slaves to be made to work for however long until they would be old enough to actually make profit to pay off their father's debt, most likely a debt that's accumulating interest all the while, so perhaps they would be indebted even for the rest of their lives. Her immediate need was to have those needs met, but God does more. He not only gives her enough oil that her immediate needs can be met, but He gives her enough oil that she can live until she finds another provider or until her sons are able to provide 
on the rest. God gives her sort of a, a divine social security without the mountains of debt to hand on to the next generation. He cares for her. And he makes sure that she is provided for not just in the moment, but in a perpetuity. Her husband is still dead, right? It's not a perfectly happy story. It's not like she goes off and says, everything is great. I mean, her husband is still dead. But her sons aren't going to be slaves. They've been redeemed in her, and her life is saved from poverty. So in a lot of ways, it's, it's a nice story, but, but how does it connect to us? How does it connect to us? How, how does it meet us in, in our place where we are? Living as we do in a land that has some sort of a, a security net where we often aren't forced to sell ourselves into slavery to pay off debts or that sort of thing. I think there's any number of applications we might make. We might make, we might make the application of saying, well, which of us hasn't found ourselves in a, a desperate place and God is still there? That's a good application. We might say as well, like we talked about a little bit last week, that God gives us more than we need. We see that Jesus does this as well in his in his earthly ministry, his very, first, his very first miracle shows that he goes above and beyond what is asked of him. In the very first miracle, there, he and his mother are at a, a wedding feast in a place called Cana, and something very humiliating is about to happen at the wedding feast. They're about to run out of wine. And in this, in this week-long wedding feast, running out of wine would have left the, the host family or families with a, a social stigma that would have carried with them probably for the rest of their lives. It would have been an embarrassment they would have borne for a very long time. And so the, the MC of the wedding comes up to Mary. For some reason, maybe he's just, maybe he's just exasperated and needs someone to tell. And he comes up to Mary and he says, we're going to run out of wine. And she says, go talk to my son. Now how she knew if he hadn't done a miracle before to go talk to her son is beyond me. But she knew that he could fix the problem. And so he goes off to Jesus and he says, we don't have any wine. And Jesus says, get some empty jars. Fill them with some water. And he turns the water into wine. But it's not just wine. It's really, really, really good wine. The guy just wanted wine. He probably wouldn't have cared if it was cheap wine. That's what people were expecting. But Jesus goes above. He gives really, really good wine. He gives more than what is needed. But what I want to drive us to most powerfully this morning is I want us to see redemption in this text. I want us to see how God saves and who God saves in this text. You know, I had an opportunity this last week on Wednesday to preach at chapel at Lansing Christian School, and I was introduced by Matthew. He did an excellent job, and he even got my name right. I was sitting there thinking, oh, I wonder if he's going to get it, because I bet half of you don't know that my last name is Coppers yet. And so he, he got it right, and it was really fun. We had a really good time with the kids. They were, they were very interactive, and I, I asked them a series of questions, and the, the first question I asked to them was, why did Jesus come? I got some really good answers right away. Well, he, he came to, to save us from our sins. I was like, that's right. 
And I quoted from Matthew 121, when the, when the angel comes to Mary to announce that she's, going to, that she's going to have a baby, he says, you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So I said, well, well who does he save from their sins? And they, they said about, about the whole group in unison, everyone. I said, well, not quite, right? The angel says he will save his people from their sins. So I said, well, how do you become his people? How do you become his person? How do you come to belong to God, to belong to Jesus? And I, I said, well, who has an answer? And about the first five or six answers were, by doing what he says, right? By, by doing what is right, by, by listening to him. And I said, well, that's good. We want to do those things. But I hope that's not how we belong to him. Right, if we belong to Jesus by always doing what he says, we don't have a whole lot of hope. I said, do any of you out there, do any of you always do what he says? And a bunch of hands went up. I said, I don't believe you. <laughs> Y'all just broke the ninth commandment in front of me. I said, no, that's, that's not how. That's not how we belong to Jesus. We belong to Jesus. We belong to Jesus as Paul says in Ephesians 2 verse 8. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. We belong to Jesus by faith. That's what we find here. We find here with this devout, humble widow, we find faith. Pure faith. She comes to the end of herself, as we might say. She comes to the point where she recognizes that she is helpless, but she also recognizes that she is not hopeless. She comes to the point where she has nothing left in the house. She is all out of ideas, except for one idea. And in the, in the end, at the last moment, when everything else seems to be at a loss, she comes to the prophet. She still has hope. You see, the, the pagan widow in Zarephath had no hope. She had no expectation that she was going to do anything but die. She had no one to turn to. It doesn't even tell us that that she ran off to the pagan priests or made any kind of last-minute sacrifices. There's none of that. She had no hope, and why should she? Those pagan gods couldn't do anything for her, and she knew it. But this widow, this widow has the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This widow has the God who parts seas and sends plagues and delivers his people. This, this widow has the God of of David. This widow has the true God, the maker of the heavens and the earth. And at the end, when there's nothing left, she knows that she is still not without hope. And so to Elisha she goes. And in doing so to the Lord, she goes. And God provides for her. He sends the oil. And in giving the oil, he saves her sons from slavery. He redeems her life from poverty. And he saves her family. And what did she have? A pitiful flask of oil, is that what did it? No, she had faith. That's all she had and in God's eyes, that's all she needed, was faith. You know, about 
about once a month or so, we, we read through the Ten Commandments together. There's any number of reasons that we do that, really three reasons, but, but one of the reasons for that is, as they say, the law of God is like a mirror. When we look into those Ten Commandments, what we see coming back to us is not so beautiful. We see our failings. We see ourselves in the, the mirror of God's law for what we truly are, if we will truly see. And it brings us to the end of ourselves. It brings us to a place where we recognize, like this widow, that we have no hope except to turn to God. I've been listening lately to the Pilgrim's Progress on audiobook as I'm driving around or, or doing whatever. The Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory. It's an allegory in the, the full sense of the, of the word. There's, there's no hiding what the allegory is. The main character's name is Christian. And Christian starts in the city of destruction and he has a, a huge heavy burden on his back. And he can't get rid of the burden. Nobody else can get rid of the burden. He can't scratch it off. It can't be torn off. There's, there's no way out of it. And all he wants is to be rid of the burden. And then one day a man named Evangelist comes and tells him that there is one who can remove his burden. And he has to go off through a, a wicked gate, a narrow gate, and he has to keep going until he comes to a hill. And there is upon that hill a cross. And the one who owns the hill, he is the one who can remove the burden. And so Christian goes off along his way. His family tells him he shouldn't go. His friends mock him, but he will not be stopped until he comes to a man named Mr. Worldly Wise Man. And Mr. Worldly Wise Man tells tells Christian that there's an easier way than going up the hill with the cross. That if he goes down this road over here, he can come to the, the house of one Mr. Morality, and Mr. Morality can get rid of the burden more easily than this man who has the cross on the hill. And so Christian goes, and he comes to the house of Mr. Morality with this huge burden on his back, and when he gets there, his heart sinks because when he gets there, he looks up and there's this huge high wall and he knows that he will never climb it with the burden on his back. And more than that, but he stands under the cliff of a mountain that threatens to crush him any moment. And so it's at that moment that Evangelist comes back to him and rebukes him for going off the way and sends him back on the way to the cross. And when he comes there, his burdens come off. And so it is for us. We cannot take another way. We can't take another way down the path of morality or civility. We can't find some other way. The only hope we have is not in ourselves. The only hope we have is in Christ. The woman had nothing else, but she turned to the Lord, and that was enough. She had no other hope except in turning to the Lord, and that was enough. When the woman turned to the Lord, he poured out the oil into all those jars and gave her exactly what she needed. That oil was her redemption. When we come to the Lord, He saves us not by pouring out oil from a flask, 
He saves us by pouring out His Son's blood into Calvary's dirt. Christ is the oil of our redemption. Our situation is not so different from her own. We find ourselves in desperate need with nowhere to turn but to the Lord. And just like it was for her, when we turn to the Lord, He proves Himself to be enough. Her situation seemed helpless. Even from the outside, it seemed hopeless. But it wasn't. Because when we come to the Lord with nothing else except our faith, though it may not seem like it, that is actually the most hopeful place. Because there is no one and nothing else who can give us what only God can give us. It is only when we come to the cross and come to the Lord of the cross that we find that perfect salvation which we so desperately need. And it is only at the cross where we find the one who saves perfectly, completely, eternally, and saves to the uttermost. This woman is us. Her salvation is ours. Praise God. Let's pray.